Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. On this episode of Newt's World, as the COVID-19 global pandemic unfolded, my guest today was in regular contact with all the key players in Congress, the Trump administration, and the drug and diagnostic industries. He has an insider's knowledge of how level after level of American government crumbled as the COVID-19 crisis advanced. In his new book, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic, physician and former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, shows how COVID-19 was able to overtake America's pandemic preparations and outlines the steps we must take to protect against the next outbreak. I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is a former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a regular contributor to CNBC and the CBS News program, Face the Nation. He's a healthcare investing partner at the venture capital firm, New Enterprise Associates, and a director of Pfizer Inc. and Illumina Inc. Dr. Gottlieb, is an internal medicine physician and a member of the National Academy of Medicine. And if I might, Scott, let me open with what led you to lay this out as a book? Thanks for having me. What I tried to do in the book was identify what went wrong, but look more at the structural features of government that I I think made us excessively vulnerable to this pandemic and allowed this to be as bad as it was. This was always going to be a pandemic. We were never going to escape this, but did it need to be this bad? And were there things that happened and structural features of government that allowed us to be more vulnerable than we thought we would be? 
and then identify what we could do differently, how we need to change, how we can build better resiliency, and how we need to look at public health preparedness through a lens of national security, which will change our orientation about how we make investments to prepare better for the future. I thought that the book would come out in a time period when Congress and others would be taking up how we're going to reform government and reform agencies and build new institutions and make investments to make sure we're better prepared for the future. So I thought that that would be going on right now. And I thought the timing of this book would be part of that debate. I still hope this book will be part of that debate. What surprises me is we really haven't taken up that discussion yet. And part of me says, well, maybe it's too early. We're still in the setting of the current pandemic, so it's hard for people to focus on how do we prepare better for the next pandemic. But I'm not sure it's ever too early. I really think we should be having this discussion right now because there were clearly things that didn't work. There were agencies like the CDC we thought were prepared to take on certain logistical aspects of the response that clearly weren't. And many Americans were surprised about the lack of capacity. But when you look at how these agencies are organized and what they were doing before the pandemic, it becomes obvious now that we really didn't have an agency equipped to deal with a public health disaster of this magnitude. Should we have something comparable to the 9-11 Commission? You know, after 9-11, we impaneled a very broad group of senior people who were used to looking at things and making tough judgments. And I'm very struck that the different ways in which the system did not work somehow need to be surfaced, and then we have to think about the kind of system we need and the kind, frankly, that modern electronics and modern information systems make possible. And that, of course, cuts right across the traditions of public health and the kind of highly decentralized, you know, people faxing in information, et cetera, than doing so with wildly different standards. I sort of agree with you. I think it may be that you've got to get through this last wave, which you've said is probably the last major surge of the infection. I think we have to get through that just both psychologically and emotionally before we can really get a grip on ourselves. But don't you think we need some kind of pretty comprehensive and tough-minded review of what didn't work, and then a proposal for the kind of investments and changes we need, because there will be future pandemics. I mean, this is something which happens on a regular basis, not often as big as 1918 or this particular version. But I can remember a number of times, and you know, well, when CDCs had to deal with stopping a potential pandemic by intervening very, very early. So what is your sort of thought or your reaction to the idea of a comprehensive review. Yeah, look, there will be future pandemics. Probably the next pandemic is going to be an influenza. That's what we always prepared for. And part of the reason we were so weak in our response to this pandemic is because a lot of our preparations were focused on flu. And we found that those flu-based plans weren't as applicable in the setting of a coronavirus as we thought they'd be. And we also never really surmised that we'd be struck with a pandemic strain of coronavirus, although it should have been a little bit more obvious that the coronaviruses were evolving in ways that were becoming more threatening to humans with the advent of SARS-1 and also MERS. In terms of a comprehensive review, I think you're absolutely right. We need something that is a much more deliberate process for trying to identify the shortcomings, the systemic features of government that were ill-prepared for this, and in proposing a comprehensive set of solutions. And I don't think that that's going to be able to be done in a normal legislating process. And the Biden administration has put forward sort of a framework for how we need to build better preparedness for the future. But it's just a framework. It's basically the outline of a strategic plan. It's not a true plan. 
we need something like what we did after 9-11. And if you remember what we did immediately after 9-11, we started to reorganize government and make investments. You know, the reason we did that was obvious. The risk was omnipresent. The risk was immediate. And we needed to come up with solutions that addressed an immediate threat to the country and threat to the homeland. So we started to immediately reform government and make different investments. I think there's a perception here that the risk of the next pandemic isn't immediate. And so there's not as much urgency around engaging that planning. I worry about two things. Number one, the risk is more immediate than we perceive. And the fact that we haven't put flu immunity in the population for one and maybe two years also is going to make us more vulnerable to the spread of a flu pathogen. So it's going to make us more vulnerable to a potential pandemic with a new novel flu because we now have a population that hasn't seen flu in a couple of years because of the mitigation we've been doing for the coronavirus has dramatically reduced flu prevalence. The other is if we get too far away from this, it may be harder to engage the policymaking process in focusing on these risks. You know, if we start this process two years from now, people may not want to really focus on this. There's going to be other national priorities. And so I would urge policymakers to start taking up this discussion in a more systematic way right now. I think the best time to make policy is when these ideas are fresh in our minds and there's an immediacy to trying to solve some of the problems. I think that the further you get from a crisis, the more the energy drops and the more the willingness to invest resources drops and the greater the resistance to reform. Given the scale of your knowledge and the depth of your understanding, were you surprised at just the whole difficulty of getting accurate information, not just out of China, but getting accurate information out of our own systems here in the United States? I was surprised by the lack of reliable information, but when you actually take a step back and you look at the structures in place for gathering that information and informing policymakers and also informing consumers with public health information on how to reduce their risk, the systems that we rely on are inadequate for a crisis. I mean, CDC was primarily tasked with the job of collecting information, doing the analytical work, and surfacing conclusions that could inform policymaking and inform consumers about how to reduce their risk. But CDC does not collect information from the healthcare market. They have these sort of bespoke feeds of data that they rely on that are collected just for the CDC that are largely a sample of healthcare information derived from a small subset of healthcare institutions in this country. They do modeling to try to derive national estimates on questions like how many people are being hospitalized with COVID every day, how many people are dying from COVID. And then they take months sometimes to formulate analysis based on their data to form conclusions. They're a deeply analytical organization, high science. They're accustomed to being the definitive word on an important clinical question, not the first word. In a crisis, we need an agency that can give us the first word because we have to make decisions in real time. Those decisions are better informed if we have partial information and no information at all. CDC's culture is, let's wait, let's analyze it, let's study it, let's publish it, let's peer review it, and then finally, four months later, we're gonna have an answer on whether this is spreading through droplets or aerosols or whether or not contaminated surfaces are spreading the virus. And so you didn't have real-time information to inform actions that had to be taken. And then when CDC ultimately published these things, they were oftentimes incomplete. One of the studies I keep pointing to was a study that CDC did in the summer where they looked at what people had done in the two weeks preceding their COVID infection, and they found that a very high percentage of people had eaten out at a restaurant. And so they concluded that eating out at a restaurant is a risk factor for contracting COVID, seemed reasonable. In the survey, they forgot to ask people if they ate indoors or outdoors. 
that was an important question. It was the summertime. So was it eating out at a restaurant that was a risk factor? Or was it eating indoors at a restaurant that was a risk factor? And in the same survey, they also grouped going to a bar and going to a restaurant in the same category. And when I asked them the question, why did you group bars and restaurants in the same category? They said, well, they're very similar environments and people do similar things in those environments. Well, that was a flaw in the methodology because I think most people would disagree that going to a bar is the same as going to a restaurant. That makes me wonder about the life experience of the people who made that decision. <laughs> That's certainly not been my experience, having gone occasionally, I emphasize occasionally, to bars and often to restaurants. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition... One-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich contract with America coin is more than an investment it's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. 
You know, I did a podcast February 9th last year in 2020 with Dr. Fauci, and he said at the time, quote, I do not believe that the death rate is going to stay at 2%. I think it's going to be less because as this disease spreads more, you get more people who are minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. He also, in the Wall Street Journal the same month, said the risk is relatively low. In fact, I would take the relatively out and say the risk is low for Americans. That's the good news. The somewhat concerning news is that this could change because this is a moving target. It's an evolving situation. Well, I mean, Fauci's one of the greatest scientists of his generation and somebody I've worked with way back on HIV AIDS in the 80s. So you have to have considerable respect. But it seems to me that it was part of that same process of underestimating that this was a genuine pandemic and the genuine pandemics spread very fast and are very dangerous. I mean, am I missing something? No, I think in the early days, it was sort of the fog of viral war. And the fact that we didn't have a diagnostic test to identify the early spread and really understand how that spread was occurring left us with a false sense that community transmission wasn't underway, when in fact it was. There was community transmission underway in January, and certainly by February, there was widespread transmission, tens of thousands of cases, when we were still making pronouncements that there was no community spread. I think the fault was not having the tools to identify the spread. That was certainly a shortcoming, but that was a structural shortcoming. I think the bigger shortcoming was not recognizing that there was more uncertainty than what we were perceiving. You know, if we didn't have a test to actually turn over cases, how could we be so confident that community spread wasn't underway? Should we have been more circumspect about this and been warning the public more and warning providers more? Because patients were coming in with unusual respiratory diseases back in February. They were testing negative for flu. Doctors didn't know what they have. How many doctors treated those patients without putting on a mask? But if they had a warning that there may be community transmission of this coronavirus underway, we would have been taking more precautions. And that was my concern back then. I aired it publicly. If you remember the famous press conference with Dr. Nancy Messenier from CDC when President Trump was famously in India traveling back and she gave a press conference saying community transmission is inevitable and the stock market sold off, that's when the president was prompted to put Vice President Pence in charge of the task force. That was sort of a story that gets told. If you listen to her press conference, she was lauded for being brave and going forward with the statement that community transmission was inevitable. If you listen to that press conference, she started out by saying community transmission has not begun in the U.S. and to date our containment efforts have been successful. That's not true. I mean, in retrospect, we now know that's not true. Community transmission was underway and our containment efforts weren't successful. But that was a pretty definitive statement at the time and probably influenced how people behaved in ways that probably potentiated further spread. Now, there's not much we could have done about it because we didn't have a diagnostic test. And I talk a lot in the book about the failures to field that diagnostic because I think it's a metaphor for some of our more important shortcomings. But I think the flaw wasn't that we didn't know. The flaw was that I think we didn't express enough humility about what we didn't know at that time. To what extent was the Chinese unwillingness to cooperate important? And to what extent would we have been about the same place even if they'd cooperated? If we had gotten more information earlier, we would have been in a better place at that point in time. The activity of the Chinese government in concealing critical facts clearly contributed to the information void that we had here in the U.S. What did the Chinese know that they didn't surface? Well, by mid-December, we now know it's public that there were multiple samples of blood and sputum being sent off for sequencing and that 
the results were coming back that there was a novel coronavirus spreading in Wuhan. So that information by mid-December would have been helpful. We didn't really know that until early January when the first sequence was formally published that this was a SARS-like virus. There was indications a little bit earlier that there was a SARS-like coronavirus spreading in China. They had evidence of asymptomatic transmission much earlier than it was disclosed. They had evidence of widespread human-to-human transmission much earlier than it was disclosed. It wasn't until around mid-January that they disclosed that there were about a dozen or a couple dozen healthcare workers infected. When healthcare workers get infected with a novel virus, it's clear evidence of human-to-human transmission because the healthcare workers got it from their patients. That's a critical piece of evidence. They didn't disclose it until mid-January. They had that evidence back in December. So those are key details that could have given us a two- or three-week head start on building some awareness here in the U.S. that maybe would have instigated certain actions earlier. Now, political officials would have needed to make the right decisions based on that information, but the fact that that information was withheld certainly set us back. When we did begin to realize it was a problem, I thought it was very odd that the CDC was reluctant to let anybody else do testing and that they were virtually hostile to other people developing tests at a time when the CDC test for at least two weeks didn't work. Do you have any insight into what was going on bureaucratically? Well, I get into a lot of detail in this in in the book because I think that the testing, again, is sort of a metaphor for our larger issues. I mean, CDC is a very insular organization. The old playbook is that when there's a novel pathogen, CDC is first to get the samples of the pathogen because the samples get sent to them. They're the first to develop a test. They forward deploy that test to the public health labs. The public health lab starts scaling up testing. And then if that's not enough testing, then the academic labs get in the game and then eventually the commercial manufacturers. This is a highly sequential process. We used it in Zika with mixed success, but we were following that playbook. And there wasn't a recognition that this was going to be a fast-moving pathogen and we needed an all-of-the-above approach right at the outset. Instead, we were following a playbook that I got a copy of the plan. The plan unfolded over six months. We didn't have six weeks. We probably didn't even have six days, let alone six months, to scale testing in this country. But we were following that model. And CDC was very jealously guarding its turf. They didn't give away the samples of the virus to other labs. So if a manufacturer wanted to develop their own diagnostic test, they needed access to the viral sample. CDC didn't start making those samples available to the end of February because they maintained custody of those samples. If a manufacturer said, okay, I can't design my own test because I don't have the virus, so I'm going to just copy the CDC's test design. Well, CDC would put in front of companies these complicated legal agreements to compel the company to basically give away any intellectual property rights to the test. And I talked to companies at the time. They said, look, we can't negotiate these IP rights with CDC. CDC wants to maintain patents and intellectual property over a test that we would be developing, that we'd be kind of innovating. This will take months to negotiate or weeks to negotiate. We're just going to wait and see. CDC has the ball. We'll see what happens. So, you know, there was sort of a catch-22. Companies couldn't design their own tests. Companies couldn't copy the CDC test design because CDC sort of jealously guarded this turf. That was the culture of the organization. Nobody stepped in and said, you know what? We need an all-the-above approach. CDC is doing their thing, but we need to get everyone else into this game. This is how we're going to do it. That needed to happen in January because the lead time on a commercial manufacturer coming up with a diagnostic test is you know, in a crash situation is at least six weeks. It's hard to do in less than a month. You've got to build and validate the test, figure out how to mass produce it. So if you want to have enough testing in place by March, you had to get these commercial manufacturers in the game in January. But as it were, we never had enough testing really until we got to the fall of the winter. And final point on this, you know, the testing was important not just because it would have told us where the virus was, 
but it would have told us where the virus wasn't. Remember, when we did the 15 days to slow the spread and then followed by the 30 days to slow the spread, a historic burden on the American people to shut down non-essential activity, we did it nationally. The 2005 pandemic plan that we came up with, which contemplated this mitigation for the first time, the idea of closing businesses and closing schools, always contemplated it on a very targeted basis. You would deploy those measures where the virus was already epidemic. But back in March, we had no idea. We knew where it was. We knew New York was engulfed with infection, but we didn't know it hadn't traveled to Bozeman, Montana, and Texas, and Florida. But those parts of the country still had the capacity to use case-based interventions, testing, tracing, tracking, quarantine as a way to control spread. They weren't yet engulfed in infection. This was a highly regionalized epidemic for a very long time. And so you could have preserved the political capital to implement the mitigation for when the virus eventually got to those parts of the country. But when the virus eventually got to those parts of the country, when the South had their epidemic in the summer, a lot of people there said, we're not shutting down again. We did this already. We did it probably when we didn't have to, and we're not doing it again. And so you lost the ability to target the mitigation, the most onerous tools, to the time when the spread actually was occurring in different parts of the country because you didn't have the diagnostic to tell you where the virus hadn't spread yet. How do you interpret the Swedish experience, if you've looked at that at all, where they did not go to shutdowns and they don't seem to have had a dramatically larger death rate than anybody else? Yeah, look, if you actually dig into the Swedish policy, they did implement pretty owners for mitigation. They restricted events to you know, a certain small number of people. There were a lot of things that they did there that were contours of what we did here. The argument that the Swedish didn't do any mitigation, and we did a lot of mitigation, I think there's more there that they did. They suffered very high death rate relative to other parts of that world. When you look at the other Nordic nations, Sweden had a much worse experience than the other Nordic nations. And so I think comparing you know, Sweden to the U.S., it's a much different culture, different density of cities, you know, different customs. I think you have to compare Sweden to countries that are similar to Sweden and relative to their peers, they had a very difficult experience with this. It's like you can't compare the U.S. to Australia. I mean, Australia locked down the island or New Zealand locked down the island. We were never going to be able to do that. I mean, we were never going to prevent a U.S. epidemic. We weren't going to seal the United States. But I think the question is, did it have to be as bad as it was? And I think if we had had a better response early in terms of the structural features of government, better tools, access to diagnostic testing, access to better guidance and information to inform decision-making by consumers about how to reduce their risk. I think it didn't have to be this bad. At least that initial wave didn't need to be this bad. The subsequent waves were determined more by the different variants that emerged. I mean, you look at systems like Walmart or McDonald's, where in McDonald's case, I think they get 37,000 store results by midnight worldwide every day. And you look at the way in which they've adapted to use modern technology. I was really surprised at how much the public health structure at every level had failed to modernize and was still in many ways very parochial and very traditional, in some ways sort of pre-information system in how they were dealing with things. As COVID-19 evolves, it strikes me, and I think you take the same position in the book, that it's going to become like the flu or like measles or like chicken pop. I mean, it's going to be one of the things which is endemic, but which is manageable. And you suggest that ultimately, particularly with the development by Pfizer and others of vaccinations appropriate for very young children, 
that ultimately will become very similar to the way we deal with a number of other viruses by simply having, you know, mass inoculation as a routine. I mean, I just got my flu shot, and I expect every year to get a flu shot because it mitigates the risk of my getting the flu and then maybe getting pneumonia and maybe being in real trouble. I mean, what's your sense of the degree to which this will become sort of a normal pattern and we'll adjust to it, it will adjust to us in five or 10 years from now, it'll be part of the background noise, but most people will just accommodate it and go on with their lives. Yeah, I think that this is gonna become an endemic virus. I don't think that this is going away. I think the virus is gonna continue to evolve in ways that it'll continue to threaten us and become sort of an omnipresent risk, but it's not gonna threaten us like it's threatening us now. I think this Delta wave is the last major surge of infection. On the back end of this, we're gonna have enough immunity in the population, either through vaccination or through naturally acquired infection, that's gonna be a backstop against the kind of spread we're seeing now. The virus will mutate, the virus will find ways to partially evade the immunity that we've acquired, but we'll update our vaccines. We're gonna have the monoclonal antibody drugs will be available subcutaneously, so they'll be able to be delivered more easily. We're gonna have orally available drugs, a pill that you could take to mitigate the risk. So we're gonna have a much different toolbox of therapeutics. We're going to have more widely accessible at-home tests, so people are going to be able to test when they think they have flu or COVID. The whole culture around diagnosis has changed dramatically in the setting of this epidemic. People now are going to be self-swabbing at home for a lot of things, not just COVID. We're going to be home testing for flu and strep throat. The idea of going to a doctor's office to get a routine diagnostic test is probably going to change dramatically. You're going to do that through telehealth and an at-home test. So we're going to have much different tools to mitigate this risk going forward and COVID will become a manageable threat. Now that said, if COVID becomes a second circulating flu, which is I think where we're heading and causes as much death and disease as flu, we already have a flu. And if we now have two flus, I think the overall impact on life, on productivity is gonna be too great for us to bear and conduct business as usual. So I do think we're gonna have to do some things differently, particularly in the wintertime when these pathogens circulate to reduce the cumulative impact of respiratory diseases in the winter, but that doesn't mean shutting things down. It means, you know, we're gonna have to retrofit confined spaces with better air filtration and hospital grade filters. Everyone's gonna be encouraged to stay home if you're not feeling well or have a sick relative. We're probably gonna find ways to try to de-densify certain spaces so you're not crowding people, especially in the height of COVID season. I think the idea of wearing masks in public on a voluntary basis, not mandated, but on a voluntary basis, is gonna become more routine. I think it's gonna become more culturally acceptable to have a mask on if you're walking through an airport and you're gonna see people doing that because they wanna protect themselves because they feel vulnerable. So things are gonna change, I think, but not change in a way where we're not gonna be functioning normally. We're just gonna you know, have a, this sort of layer of vigilance around the risk of respiratory diseases. And quite frankly, the payoff may be that we have less flu, we have less RSV, we have less other viral pathogens, and we're healthier overall because we reduce the density of these epidemics. Before COVID, we were oddly complacent about flu. We let it infect far too many people and kill too many people. With some simple interventions, we could have more dramatically reduced flu incidents. I think we're going to have to do that now. Are you going to spend holidays with your family this year? I plan to spend the holidays with my family at Thanksgiving and Christmas time. I think people can come together for sure. Look, I think people need to judge their circumstances. What is the prevalence of infection in their community? Are they bringing young kids who are unvaccinated together with older individuals who may be more vulnerable despite vaccination? And if the circumstances are that it could be a risk to someone who's going to be joining you, Use diagnostic testing, get a Binax now and test before you bring people together. There's things you can do 
to reduce the risk to those who might be vulnerable in a congregate setting. That doesn't mean you have to cancel Christmas. I mean, I think families can and should come together. We're in a much different situation this year than we were last year. We have better tools for identifying spread. We have better tools for protecting the vulnerable. So the circumstances are far different. And I just think people need to, you know, look at what the individual risk is and make decisions about how they can reduce that risk. Yeah, Clist and I had the experience first of coming back from Italy this summer and then going to an event a few weeks ago where we basically had a self-applied diagnostic tool and it was amazing. I mean, it's astonishing how rapidly we're learning to decentralize this sort of thing. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com/investinginamerica. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of 1 ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in US history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history, and now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484 4043. That's 866 484 4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for best documentary feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z I G A Z O O.
because of your unique background as food and drug administrator plus your knowledge of the system and the fact that you now serve on the Pfizer board, how big a deal was Operation Warp Speed and did it actually make a difference? I think it made a difference. You know, Operation Warp Speed was a recognition, in my view, of what didn't work in the beginning. You know, in the beginning, we talked a lot about CDC and some of the shortcomings of CDC. CDC didn't have the logistical capacity to operationalize a response to a crisis of this magnitude. Operation Warp Speed was a recognition that we didn't have a government agency that could help jumpstart the development and production of vaccines. NIH had certain key assets. FDA had certain key assets. The Department of Defense had certain key assets in terms of understanding how to scale a manufacturing enterprise and a distribution enterprise. And Operation Warp Speed was a recognition that we needed to bring together components of all those entities to create some hybrid process to be able to accomplish this mission. We should have done that from the outset. We should have married maybe CDC with FEMA right at the outset. We didn't do that. We thought CDC had the capacities that FEMA had. And Operation Warp Speed, I think, was a recognition that we needed different kind of structures in government. Now, what did Operation Warp Speed do? They certainly helped scale the development and production of the Moderna vaccine. Pfizer didn't take the initial grant money and participate in the same way, but there were certainly benefits that Operation Warp Speed was able to provide in terms of the development. I think where Operation Warp Speed didn't have as much focus, and in retrospect, it was the wrong decision, was on the therapeutics, on making investments in the rapid scale-up of therapeutics and trying to get early on the manufacturing capacity to be able to produce things like the monoclonal antibody drugs at massive scale. We never had enough of those drugs. Even the Merck drug, which looks highly promising, this small molecule drug, an oral inhibitor of viral replication, we only procured 1.7 million doses. To put that in perspective, there's somewhere between 50 and 80 million doses of flu drugs in the strategic national stockpile as a hedge against a feared pandemic flu. So we have maybe 80 million doses of flu drugs stockpiled, and we procured 1.7 million doses of this Merck drug, which looks to be highly promising. 1.7 million doses is about enough to carry you through three weeks of the Delta surge if you gave it to the indicated population. So we didn't make enough investments in the therapeutics. As you look ahead, is it your expectation, I mean, we've had a number of epidemic diseases come out of animals, particularly in South Asia. We've been very fortunate most of the time in either stopping it or containing it. You had mentioned earlier you think we're more likely to be with an influenza pandemic in the next cycle, but aren't there a whole range of these kind of viruses drifting around have waiting for the opportunity to evolve into something which transmits easily from ducks or pigs or, so, or bats or whatever to humans? Yeah, look, no question. There's threats everywhere in nature. There's also threats in labs. I mean, we're doing things in laboratories and we're not securing our research and we're doing higher risk research. And there's a persistent risk that something escapes from a lab as well. And we need to get better governance around labs. And that's why it's so important, I think, to better ascertain, did this come out of nature or a lab? Because if we assess that there's a probability that this might have come out of a lab as an accident, that changes how we govern research going forward, too, or it should change how we govern research. Frankly, I think we should change how we govern research anyway. But there's risks everywhere. Flu is the most likely pandemic in the future, but it's not the only risk. And what we really need to be focused on are the category of viruses that spread through respirations, either through droplets or aerosols, and replicate through RNA. A virus that replicates through RNA has the capacity to mutate very rapidly. And a virus that spreads through respiratory droplets or aerosols has the capacity to spread very quickly. And if you 
Look at the category of viruses that encompass those two features. They replicate through RNA and they spread through droplets or aerosols. You have a much broader universe of threats. It includes flu, it includes coronavirus, but it also includes Nipah virus, and it includes a whole host of other things. And I think we need to think more broadly, because even if we have a flu as the next pandemic, it may be a flu with characteristics that are very different than influenza. It may have a long incubation period. It may spread through asymptomatic transmission. It may present with neurological features and not just respiratory features. I mean, we've got to just understand that just because something has presented a certain way before, we can't prepare for future risks against those features because what's probably going to present the greatest risk is something that falls outside of convention. And the reason why it's risky is because it falls outside convention. So we need to be prepared against a broader set of sort of features of viruses and not just a specific pathogen, which is how we prepped in the past. I mean, we've been sort of lucky in a sense, haven't we, that things like Ebola, which are extraordinarily dangerous, but they don't seem to spread very rapidly and they seem to be much more containable than things like the flus or, in this case, the COVID-19. But there are some, particularly in Africa, some really unpleasant things that if you do get it, you're in really, really deep trouble. Yeah. Things like Ebola, those pathogens never acquire the capacity to spread through aerosols. And it's actually in virology, and I'm going to go outside my expertise here, but I think it's probably more difficult for a pathogen to change its mode of transmission than for a pathogen to change some feature on its viral surface that elicits a different kind of response in a human. Like, so Ebola is going to have a hard time figuring out how to spread through aerosols because it's got to fundamentally change too many of its features to spread through a completely different mode of transmission. But could an influenza strain pick up some protein that when exposed to a human elicits a much more devastating immune reaction in our bodies. That's a possibility. That's what you worry about. That something that already spreads efficiently acquires a feature that causes it to have some significantly more deleterious effect on people. And, you know, even this coronavirus can pick something up that we aren't thinking about right now, where all of a sudden its impact is very different. Instead of causing a primary respiratory infection, it causes some neurological features. And that's what you worry about with these viruses, that they mutate in ways that they cause different kinds of disease. Something that's already efficient at spreading mutates in a way that it becomes much more pathogenic. In a sense, that's what happened in 1918, that you had sort of a traditional flu, but it suddenly required a virility in which one of the reasons younger people died an abnormally large percent of all deaths, was that the flu was actually triggering their immune system, and their immune system was actually overwhelming them, so that in a sense, they were being killed by their own immune system because it had such an aggressive response to the flu. I mean, that would be very hard to model in advance, and you'd almost have to find it in real time once it started to occur. That's what happened with this coronavirus, too. A lot of the people who get very sick from covid People are getting infected. They're not mounting an appropriate early immune response and fighting off the infection. So they build up high levels of the virus in their bodies. And then when their immune systems finally kick in, they have so much virus on board that it triggers an overreaction by the immune system. And you get that intense inflammatory response, that so-called cytokine storm in the second week of the virus. And that's what gets people into trouble. So it is an untoward inappropriate immune response to this virus that gets a lot of the people in trouble. It's not the initial infection 
and the initial symptoms caused by the virus. It's the immune system's inappropriate response to the virus later. And there's other viruses that when you have a novel virus that the body's never seen before, the body overreacts to it. And that's exactly what we presume happened in, with the Spanish flu, that people were getting infected with a virus that was so novel that people were having an overactive immune response. And it was the immune response that was actually destroying their tissue in their lungs. Their own immune system started to attack their own bodies. I want to thank you. I hope this conversation convinces a number of our listeners to get uncontrolled spread why COVID-19 crushed us and how we can defeat the next pandemic, which is currently number six on the New York Times bestseller list. We'll be on our show page at newtsworld.com. Scott, I really want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to help all of us have a better understanding of what has happened and what we need to do. And I want to encourage you to continue to speak out on behalf of the kind of reforms that I think you articulate as well as anybody in the country. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me today. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. You can get a link to buy his new book, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. 
Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.